right, welcome to the book club. And I am so honored and blessed to be able to introduce my two friends. So Brayden Moore was actually the one who told me about this wonderful book. So Brayden, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for telling us about this book. And I'm gonna pass it over to Kirian to, to introduce himself and tell us why he wrote this book. And just thank you for joining us. I can't thank you enough. Uh, I'll speak a little bit in Dagro. So, good day. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody how much you enjoyed the book and what you've said so far. It's remarkable. It really touches my heart and that this book reached out to so many people far beyond my expectations. Masi. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? Um, so your son, he took me to go see uh, Leela Gilday and oh, yes. um, who was there but Leonard Kenny. And Leonard Kenny taught me to say my name of Red Thunder Woman and it's Dekots Nagotine Sigu. And he said, all you people down here have your wrong emphasis. <laughs> so I know it's going to take me some time to learn how to say that properly and uh, and rightfully so he gave me a good uh, rib <laughs> so we're going to get there but I, I really love hearing uh, like I haven't been able to learn my language so um, so my my granny went to Fort Providence uh, Sacred Heart and then I had an aunt and an uncle that went to a, one of the Anglican uh, residential schools. So um, I know my granny knows her language and I know my mom somewhat understands it because she'll speak it around her, but um, she doesn't know how to speak it either, actually. She went to uh, the Catholic school in, in Yellowknife. So um, my my great-grandfather was um, uh, Milo Biwo. That's That's my family. I don't know if you know them. I, no, I don't recall that, that name off the top of my head. Sure, that's okay. Yeah, so, that, yeah. you know, my, I have lots of family up there. My Auntie Teresa, she's going to get married here um, oh. at the end of July. So I'm going to head up, head back up there. I hope. We'll see. We're trying to make it work. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So um, I, I was thinking that I don't know if you want to read about part from one of your, uh, a passage of your book, but um, I'll, I'll just acknowledge one thing that sure. uh, like I'm, I'm in Peterborough right now, and it's uh, Treaty 20 land of the Mishishisege and the Anishinaabe people. Mm. And uh, I uh, just thought I'd add that too. That's wonderful. Before we get into it. Yeah. You know, um, you, you did this one part here about Ray Lakes, um, and I wanted to tell you my middle name is Ray, spelled ah. this way. Because, and my mom, she named me that, and I was always embarrassed about my Indigenous heritage. So I was like, can we change it to Rachel or something, Michelle, Rachel? <laughs> and then when I obviously started to walk down the red road and understand why my middle name was, was Ray the way it is, I'm obviously very proud of my middle name now. So I'm just, I'm hurt that I wasn't proud of it at all. 
but there's so <laughs> many great stories here to talk about. And one of my favorite parts about your book was that you literally can just read one chapter um, while reading or drinking a coffee. You know, like it, it's such a fun, easy read and it's, and you're such a good storyteller. That's how I wrote it mm -hmm. in the coffee shop. <laughs> I went for coffee and I'd write something down and the next, next day I'd go for coffee and I'd write it down. <laughs> so that's why it's good to read in the coffee shop. <laughs> oh, it's so good to read. It's so fun. Um, my husband has like this book about Frank Fence Post and, and it's a really fun read. But this one, like it, I just feel like I got, I went hunting with you. I went on the caribou hunt with you and, uh, you know, and, and I know my uncles and I know they're funny. So I can just imagine all these uncles being like, can you believe this guy? He actually like had a whole dog pack without a lead. Can you believe this guy? <laughs> like I, I totally can picture this happening. So. <laughs> what are some of your favorite memories that, that are in this book that you, that you'd like to share? Oh, myself. Um, uh, the, the most memorable one was with uh, the, the gentleman called Jimmy LaCord. And it was one of my tr first trips into the Barren Lands. And uh, we had traveled for miles and miles and portages and portages. And, and uh, the uh, actually one particular portage, um, it, 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 it was with the fellow called Harry Simpson. And we got to the last portage before the Barren Lands and it was an enormous hill. And we were all exhausted. And, uh, and I, one of the fellows says, this portage is three miles long and, I, and we don't stop. And I thought three miles with a 22 foot canoe on your back and two, two people with a 22 foot canoe. And it was a huge, heavy canoe. And the fellow in front of me uh, was a, a, oh, 15, 20 years older than me. And he was an old man <laughs> in my eyes, he was much older. <laughs> And I was just a young buck of 21, 21 years of age. And uh, he says, well, grab that end of the canoe, basically. And I grabbed the other end of the canoe and we started going up the hill. And I, I thought, I can't do this. And uh, you, you, it's just, you're looking at the dirt. The dirt is right in front of your face and the canoe is up there and he's up there. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're on an angle like, like that and the canoe is like this. Anyway, the, the long and short of it is I could see his knees going like this, like water. And, um, and he says to me in, in dog group, he says, uh, uh, can, can you keep, keep up? Can you keep going? And there was something in the tone of the voice that it, it spoke so much more than can you keep going as much as to say, don't give up. There was something in the tone like if you give up, I have to give up. And, and it's that if you keep going, I have to keep going. So it's that teamwork, that effort to, to make it to the top. And, and I, I wanted to drop the canoe right there. I wanted to give up, but it was the tone of his voice. And, and I'm looking at his knees going like this. I think we, we, we gotta drop it. And I said, no, keep going. So when he made a motion forward, I, I naturally went forward with that motion. And then when I made a motion forward, he naturally went. So you're helping each other. And, and the whole trip was all about that, helping and, and, and working together as a unit. And we got to the top of the hill and he said, can you keep going again? And I was thinking, we made it to the top. Like, I mean, that's enough. 
Like, I mean, this is a humongous hill. And I remembered what the young fellow told me just before we left, it's three miles long and we don't stop. And I, <laughs> I thought, there's no way I can do this. And, but again, I said, okay, I'm okay. And, and, and he took a step and I took a step. And three miles later, we made it to the lake. And it, it, it pushed you past any boundaries you'd ever imagined that you could do and you would ever normally push yourself to. And it, it was by pushing yourself, you're helping him push himself and him pushing himself is helping me push myself. And together you make it. And, and, and it was done, like it was truly amazing. To, and then you make one more trip back and get all your gear and come back. And instead of putting it down, lifting up, putting it down and lifting up, you, you got it over with, you got the job. As we were saying, the, the old fellow, Jimmy LaCord, later on in that trip was uh, the most uh, emotional uh, uh, thing that ever happened to me was when uh, there was, uh, we, we went out to look for caribou and we like all of the people that were traveling on this trip all went out in different directions. And him and I and one other fella, a young fellow came along and uh, we, a, a big snowstorm was coming in and uh, uh, we could see it in the distance. It was just a big black cloud. And as we walked along, we see it's getting closer and closer. And uh, there was a huge rock, like one of those phenomena where you have hills all over the place, but there's an enormous rock bigger than a Volkswagen car just sitting on the top of the hill. You wonder how does something like that get there? But anyways, we, we got, he, he said, let's get behind the rock. We got behind the rock and we looked down the valley and as far down the valleys you could see, we, we've been traveling all day long and, and hadn't been hearing shots anywhere. So no one's uh, having any luck. And lo and behold, we saw some caribou at the bottom of this hill and they're coming towards us. And uh, behind them is this big, enormous black, black cloud. And uh, so, and normally a snow cloud is, is white, but this was black. <laughs> anyway, we hid behind the rock and then the caribou got a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then the snowstorm moved in. And it was, we were, because we're on the top of this hill, the cloud is coming down the valley and then into us. And it was the true, true feeling that you're inside of a cloud. You're, it was, uh, it was an, an incredible uh, feeling to feel like you're inside of a cloud, not just looking at a cloud. But you're in it. It wasn't like you're, you know, you go get in your car and you go for a ride and a snowstorm comes and you see the snow coming on your windshield. But this was, the, you saw the cloud there and you're in it, you know, <laughs> as it approached. The rest, you know, the rest of the sky was blue and then all of a sudden you're in that cloud. And that was a, a very eerie, strange sensation for me. And, uh, and I was frozen to the core. Like I was shaking. I mean, literally, my teeth were chattering and was shaking. And I, I, I said to the young fellow kid behind me, I said, I don't, I don't think I could make it. And, you know, how are we going to get back to the camp? It's miles and miles away. And now we're in this storm. We don't know how long it's going to be. And uh, then the old man said, come on, it's time to go. But we're in the storm. And the only protection is that rock. And he, he said, let's go. We're going to get caribou. <laughs> so we walked into the storm, into this blinding blizzards, soaking wet snow coming down, and we're walking down a hill, 
And then all of a sudden, he, he tells, tells us to stop. And like my, I'm walking along shaking like this. And I look at my gun and my entire gun, the, the, the gun is completely coated with ice. Even the, the mechanism to, to, to get the shells in, coated with ice. I'm coated with ice. You go like this to break the, the, break the, the so that you can move your arm. And then he, he points and he says, he didn't say anything, he just points and we, and we look in the blizzard and there's the caribou and their heads are into the storm. They're all facing into the storm and they're standing there all around us. We've walked into the middle of the herd. And he said, pick one. And then he goes like this. He says, pick one. And he, he, he knows I don't understand everything. But then the young kid is, I said, what does he mean? And he says, when he went, when it goes like that, he says, you look for the caribou with a flat back, not one that his back is arched like that, because that's a fat caribou. The one whose back is arched a little, he's not fat and maybe not healthy, but you look for the fat, and, and they really like fat, the fat of the caribou, it is primo. And so uh, we, we looked around and I look at my gun, I've got to hit my gun to, to get the, the shells so they'll, they'll operate. And, uh, and, 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 and we shot the caribou. And uh, after that, I was still shaking, like each one of us shot one. And I, I told the, the young kid, tell the old man, I can't make it. Like how, it's impossible. There's nowhere to make a fire. We can't, what, how am I gonna carry a caribou on my back to the camp when I can't even carry myself? So he tells the old man, the old man turns to him and he says, do as I do, just do as I do. So I thought, you know, okay. So he goes over to the caribou. Now, you ladies, you might not like this, but he goes over to the caribou and he cuts the, the he said, bring a cup and I get your cup and I got a cup. And he goes over to the caribou and he cuts the caribou's throat. And uh, first he said a prayer over the caribou. They say a prayer to each animal that died and they give their spirit up and uh, give thanks that that animal is giving you sustenance and that you will live, but he will die to, to help you live. And so after that, he cut the caribou's throat and put, I put my cup there and the caribou's blood would drain into the cup. And, and, then, he, and, and then he took it and he drank it. And I was shocked and I was disgusted to tell you the truth. I was, it was just my upbringing that, you know, it looked terrible, you know, that, and then I thought to myself, what am I thinking? My father's favorite food is blood sausage every Sunday. So what is the difference from raw blood and a blood sausage? What is the difference? And that was how I overcame it. But because of my upbringing, the disgust came out automatically. You know, oh, that's disgusting. You know, kind of thought came into my mind which is outrageous, <laughs> but that's everybody's upbringing when you're brought up a certain way. It's just, it's part of, you know, you're not even aware that's how you're, you're, you're upbringing. So anyways, I drank that, that, that blood and it was almost hot to the touch to the lips, like, like a cup of coffee. And it was, it, it was an incredible, the warmth that, that, you, that I felt go into my stomach and, the, and the, 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 the strength I was able to gain and I was able to skin that caribou and the storm passed and the other caribous all wandered off. And it, it, was the, it was so mystical and so amazing. And 
we skin the caribou, you take all of the caribou, every part of it, except the, the guts, you take the guts, you take the stomach, even the stomach, is, you, there's parts of the every gland you can imagine, and you put it into the hide, and uh, you, you, you bring this tump line, what's called a tump line, that's the only thing you carry is a teapot and a tump line in your gun. And, uh, and what you do with the tump line is you tie it onto the two ends of the, uh, the hide, wrap the hide around it, you throw the meat and everything in, and then you, you, you tighten it up, and then you throw it over your back, and you, or you put it on a rock and you lean back and, and you, it, it's, it's over your head and you carry the whole caribou on your back. There's no straps uh, like that. And uh, uh, like I say, they don't waste a single thing that, that, that the caribou has. Like everything is, every organ, everything is utilized. And from there, we went back to the camp. But I always think, that, uh, you know, uh, on, on my deathbed that that'll be one of the things that I'll always remember is is this the feeling that that animal gave its life for me and truly saved my life and that's what life's all about you know surviving and uh, and helping each other and uh, but that, that that old man that did you know to have the wisdom to know to go into a blizzard and to know where in that blizzard to go and find those caribou was so amazing to be so in touch with the, the land and so in touch with it, it, when the tough, when, it, when the going gets hard, even if it, you have to go through something harder, you go through that to get to where you, your destination, what the end goal is. And uh, it's, uh, it was a real lesson, a real life lesson that you'd never learn as a young man in my entire life. Uh, I would have never learned that had I not had that experience. And it, it got me through so many hard times after that and pushed myself, you know, through hard times that normally I would have given up a hundred times. And, and yeah, those situations between the guy with the canoe going up and the, the old man and the caribou. Was <laughs> well, it's an incredible story. And I, I remember when uh, reading that part where you were drinking the blood and, you know, like, I, I think all of us here, because we're all in Canada, uh, know what it's like when you're out in the cold, and you're way too cold, and then you finally get that hot drink, yeah. and how that would change everything. And so I, I remember reading that thinking, like, that's that hot chocolate you never expect is going to be so good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I invite um to open this up so maybe um you know susan i've seen you kind of nodding along and kathy and brayden uh obviously want to give indigenous voices a chance to reflect first so if you uh want to unmute yourself and and talk about your highlight of the book and and ask the author any questions now would be a great time although brayden i guess you talk to him every day but Okay, I guess I'll go. Yeah. This book. It's like I talked to my dad through the whole process of this book. And even before he wrote it down, these are the stories that I grew up with. It's like I remember hearing about the Horn Plateau. And I remember hearing about the snow fairies. And I remember hearing about the rat canoes and just, it's just, it's so awesome. I'm so proud that 
I'm just so proud. It's just all the pictures are amazing, but it's just, I know there's so many different, it's like I can't even pick a, a single part that I like out of it. It's like everything, like how he ended up in the North, how Kiran ended up into the Northwest Territories. That was, yeah, that was, there's no words to describe it. But yeah, no, it was just, and then hearing about like how he worked at the gold mines and then like he ended up going out to Gamete, which is Ray Lakes. So he ended up going out to Gamete and he built like, it's so awesome. He went up there like just wanting to build a life, like going up there because he wanted to build cabins. And this is like an Irish guy who just doesn't know nothing about the bush. And he just like picked up and went up there. And several times people have told him like, no, turn around, turn around. No, he didn't. He didn't turn around. He went up there and he had like 20 bucks to his name and his vehicle and he built the life for himself. And it's like so many of the buildings that he built as a, as a carpenter up in the Northwest Territories are still standing to this day. Like there's still buildings in, in Betcher called Ray Edzo that are still standing. There's, Buildings in like Snare Lakes and like Gamete that are still standing from my understanding. There's buildings in Delina that he's built and it's, it's awesome. But I guess like the, a few of the stories or a few of them that really, really stuck with me since I was a child was have to be the Horn Plateau experience. Walking 73, 78 miles, not kilometers, miles. It's like, it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it because it was like, I, I, just, I just don't know. It just gives me goosebumps thinking about all of these things. Just, yeah, I, um, yeah, I've been up to Yellowknife twice that I remember. And, um, you know, it, it, it's really intimidating to me to be thinking like, um, what it would be like to continue going so like this would have been what a couple of years ago already like there's no cell service uh for a good four hours at times and um so what i don't think people like the group here remember prior to cell phones and party lines they probably remember that as opposed to uh, the new generation like my daughter would never understand what that would be like in any capacity and um you know i've been out to um fort providence and it's there's not very many buildings there not nearly as many as i thought were going to be there considering it was like a headquarters for the rcmp the catholic church and then the residential school you know so it, it i would be really intimidated by that um in the summer it's all fires now was it like that when you were up there Yes, there, there was always quite a few forest fires. The, the year I went up there, there was a, a big fire between Fort Providence and Fort Ray in 1968, I think it was. And it, almost everything in that 100-mile, 150-mile stretch uh, burnt out. It was an enormous forest fire. Yeah. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's constant up there. So... It doesn't seem like there's enough firefighting um, resources, but that's another conversation. Susan or Kathy, did you want to um, reflect at all about your about reading the book? 
Sure, I'll go. Um, sorry, I, I don't see Susan at all, so I don't know if she wanted to go or not. But um, there was just so many things that it was so many great stories in there. Um, <laughs> I got a good chuckle out of the Raven and how, uh, <laughs> and how you know, the kids had to teach it to say swear words. <laughs> so that was kind of a sad one, but I mean, I, I enjoyed the beginning part of that story a lot. And um, I, I guess I just found throughout the whole book how fearless the, the people traveling by dog sled had to be like to to go across water like I mean I went ice fishing once in a vehicle and I, I was wanting to jump out I'm telling them stop let me out I want to get out because I could hear the ice cracking I can't imagine like going across open water to an ice flow that would just be beyond my capacity to force myself to do something like that um yeah so just the the basic the bravery of everybody uh to travel is just phenomenal um but one thing that really stood out for me was right at the end when um josephine rabiska when you were telling her stories um when she hunted the moose because all the men were away hunting and so there's this older woman and what her granddaughter or something and they're in a canoe with a a knife <laughs> wrapped around a pole and they're hunting a moose like that just blew me away like again how brave like I guess you got to do what you got to do to survive but I I can't imagine moose are so big to even if it's swimming and it can't turn around really fast I'd be terrified to be going in a little canoe up to try and kill a moose and then you have to drag it out of the water and get it up there and all that stuff I'm like wow it's like it's so humbling you know like the the, the just amazing i really loved all of your stories they were so good thank you so much for writing this book and for being here tonight and, and talking with us thank you thank you yeah and when you think that those women they would lived with the, there'd be no welfare back in those days there was no housing they literally lived in a tent uh, year round summer and winter and uh the odd person would have a log cabin, not not too many, in her generation, and uh, they uh, like you have your children on the land as you go. You know, it 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 was incredibly tough life, but they had it down to a science, and they worked in harmony with nature. When you think of the whole of of of, of the United States and Canada and North America, and you think of how the First Nations people would have lived in harmony, complete harmony with nature. And uh, like, like the old man, uh, Alexi, uh, when he told when I asked him, how did people, why didn't they have uh, lots of dog teams, like 10, seven or eight or 10 dogs in a dog team? And he, he said, well, there was no metal back then. And if you have no metal, you have no dog chain. You have, if you don't have a dog chain, how can you have seven or eight dogs running around your tent and where are you going to keep your meat to make dry meat? So things were in balance. People, they had three dogs, two to three dogs that they, they, they could trust or they could keep an eye on. And, uh, uh, and, and the, the idea of that 
in truth, the introduction of steel and metal into the uh, North America, when uh, the odd person that would have a co copper uh, arrowhead, but in all of North America, there was very, very little steel of any kind being used for anything. And it was that introduction that changed this entire, uh, with the population of people coming. But, and, and that game that uh, they played was called Sequine. And uh, that's where they, the, the fellow chased me around uh, with an ax. And uh, the, the whole point of that game afterwards was explained to me that the, the medicine men who used to play Sequine, it wasn't a game, it was for real. And uh, this is just a carry on from it. And they said that if, if, uh, uh, if somebody went and traded with the, with the white man who no one had even seen yet, like, like they would go uh, down south and trade with the white man and then come back and tell their people, you know, there's these people, they're weird, they're white. And they got all these fancy things and uh, they uh, and you'd bring back a pot. And you could actually put a pot on something on a fire and boil water in it like it was unimaginable. Well, I mean, how easy would it be to become addicted to getting a, a pot of tea? You know, every woman's dream would be back then. You know, I could actually boil water <laughs> in a pot. So it was a dream come true to them. But the, the medicine men could see what this was bringing. They understood that these conveniences are gonna bring so many changes to our land, to our people. And they would get mad. And they found out that that person had a pot, they'd smash it to pieces. And then, the, you know, the women would be like, like what the, what's going on here, man? I like my pot. <laughs> and so someone would bring him a pot again. And uh, they hear the medicine man, is, he was a traveler. Now, you know, he'd be traveling from, uh, 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 um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, I forget the name of it when you have a clan. They, people lived in little small clans and he would travel from clan to clan because they didn't live in huge campments. They lived in little campments because the, the land could only sustain so much, so much fish and so much hunting and fishing uh, in a certain area that people, uh, that there was no big tribe in one area that congregated, except maybe for special occasions, but uh, they would, the one, the tribes would be, they'd cover the land, they'd be everywhere. They utilized the land. They, they utilized every inch of the land and they were, they knew the good spots to live on. And so that's why they were dispersed, but they would always be a chief or a medicine man that would travel around and check on everybody and tell them what's going on and what changes are taking place and, and where the caribou are and things like that. And, uh, the, so the medicine man would come along and, and, and he, would, he would look around and he'd see there's no pot, but he wouldn't believe them. And he'd take his spear and he'd walk around and he, they said they could, the story was told to me, you could bury that pot three feet in the ground and that guy would come with a spear and he would shake all over like that, shake where that pot was and dig it up and then he'd smash it all to pieces. And, and you... When you first hear the story, like when they told it to me, um, the young fellows that are explaining the story to me and how it was told to them, they weren't aware of, and it took me years to try and put, piece it together to think of like, what, why was he doing that? It was just what he did, right? And, but nobody really thought about why he did it. But when I think back, they were medicine men and they, they, they knew what was coming. There was change coming. And they wanted so much to stop that change.
and they knew the importance of it. And it, it's so seeing into the future and so, so, so incredible when you think about it. It seems like such a silly little game, but it has true, deep, deep meanings of, of the survival of, 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 uh, of, of North America and the survival of, of the planet because they lived in harmony with nature and there's no pollution and there's no overkilling. There's no, uh, it, it's just, a, just a, a very good way of living. Yeah. I always tell people that the Garden of Eden was here until colonialism. Uh, Susan, did you wanna unmute yourself? Yes. Um, I was really interested in the whole relationship with the dog sleds and the dogs, because when I look at historic pictures, I always see the people with their dogs and how they are working, working for, for us at that time to transportation and for the hunting. So I'm interested in how it, how you came to relate to these dogs, getting these dogs, getting them hooked up and being respectful of them because they're big and strong and they and you wouldn't want to be between them and a fish or something for their food or between two dogs but i'm interested in in how you came to have this relationship with the community and then learned how to run behind a dog sled sounds very very energetic and uh, physically taxing my cousins did organize a dog sled run between larange and, and prince albert about 20 years ago or so so um I guess we're still keeping our hand in. So could you just ex explain your relationship and your history then with the dogs, dog sledding and the respect? I, I think it was just, I, I, when I first landed in uh, Ray Lakes and, and saw dog teams and saw people utilizing them, I became absolutely fascinated with it. I, I just was astonished of, of uh, the, what they could accomplish. Like they, they, they would haul logs, logs when I was building uh, uh, buildings there, they would haul logs with the dog teams and the distances they traveled. And uh, it was in the springtime then, it was on sheer ice. But then uh, later years, they, when they go for caribou and that, and they go like uh, right into the barren lands, 100, 150 miles. And uh, uh, sometimes uh, like the one trip we made, we traveled all day, all night, and all day again, because we had run out of food and we hadn't seen caribou. And, and the astonishment, the, the strength of these dogs was, was incredible. And as we got into the second night, uh, I, I told the guys in front, uh, that I was traveling with that uh, I don't think my dogs can make it. There's no way, like they, I've got, we haven't fed them. There's no, they, they've got nothing to eat and they're, they're slowing right down. And I can barely keep up to you guys. And the guy said to me, he said, don't worry. He said, tonight's a full moon. I said, what's the full moon got to do with it? He said, when those dogs see their shadow, you, you wait and see, there's pesos pick up. Well, the dog, the dog harnesses I had all had bells on them. Across the back, they have bells. And uh, uh, I, all you could hear as I'm going was cling, 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 and then I'm, I'm in my sled and I'm covering up and I'm looking ahead and get off and run behind and then get, catch up and get in the, you can only do so much running you're exhausted you try to give the dogs a break but then you get it you find that you can only do so much so I get back in the sled and cover up and 
And then all of a sudden it, it gets dark and then the moon started to come up. And then as soon as the, I was watching the moon and to see what, what the guy was talking about, he says, when they see their shadow, they'll pick up speed. And the moon comes up and sure enough, you, I could see the dog's shadow. And then I could hear ching it was unbelievable <laughs> whatever it is they're competing with the dogs beside them in their mind you know that that's the pace uh, who knows but it it was so factual so real it, it's uh, it was mesmerizing and how these the people know you know all these things about nature and, and working in harmony with with the, the creatures that you work with and uh, but the one thing that was always treacherous is if you you never come between two dog teams like to to stop a fight you'd never get in the middle to stop a fight you'd go on the outside and pull your dogs away and uh, but you'd never go in the middle and try to stop the fight this way so that was the one thing i could warn you about <laughs> and uh, and then the type of gloves the people wore they wore a, a leather glove everything was handmade uh, but the, they had a gauntlet glove and the gauntlet glove comes up to about here. And it's like, uh, this, is, this would be, this part here would be caribou high and uh, easy to work with. It's uh, uh, like suede. And, uh, but this part here, they'd use moose and they'd, uh, I can't remember what they'd sew inside there, but it was very stiff. And the whole uh, principle behind that is that when the dogs are fighting, that if you get in there, the dog goes for your wrist. And uh, he doesn't break your hand so much as he goes for your wrist. So you're trying to stop two dogs from fighting. They, they will go, go to bite you. Well, you're wearing that gauntlet glove. You won't be bitten. You it won't go through and, and do as much damage. Yeah. That's <laughs> hope that story. helps. <laughs> Thank you. I just, could you talk about, um, there's, how the people shared their stories and in that way navigated through the land without maps. So could you, you did talk about some of that in the stories. Could maybe just relate another story around that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. You you sit down at night and the elders tell stories and they'll talk about the creation of the world. And they'll talk about uh, Yamazaw who created the world. And uh, he, he was a giant and he traveled uh, around the world and what he did and uh, as he traveled. And uh, so you'd, you'd get to, uh, a, when you'd get to a certain, like when you're traveling by boat to the Barrenlands and everybody sits around the campfire, they'll talk about that area you're in right now. And they'll say, they'll, you see that rock over there? It's a, it's a great big rock. And like there's a quartz vein around this, you know, it's literally a hill. But there's a line around it in the in the in the stone, like a quartz vein, and uh, they said, well, they'd have a story behind that that the Amazon tied a rope there, and I can't remember the exact thing that happened with the rope, but so so now you know uh, the next time uh, somebody says, uh, oh, I saw some moose at such and such a lake, and you'd say, well, whereabouts? Well, it's right near where Amazon tied the rope. Now you have an identification point. But if, if all along, every camp, every night, you tell the story of what happened in that area, then you have a story of the entire uh, boat trail. So you know that today you go over this portage 
and you're going to be at the lake with the rope tied around the rock. And you haven't been there in three years. And you travel, you go over a portage and there's no rock there. Then you'd know you've gone too far or you've gone, you've missed the right trail. And you'd go back and try the other portage. You know, you get stuck at, you know, should we go that way or this way? And by keeping the legend in your mind and this whole story that goes with this trail that leads you to the barren lands, you always know where you are in relationship to uh, where, where the story was and, and what to expect next, you know, whether it's a waterfall was near there or if there's a, uh, you know, some danger that's near there, you, you'd be aware, oh, we've got to be, the ice isn't very good around that area, so we should always stay on the right. And the reason is there'll be a legend be, beside that too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll open it up then to some other folks. So maybe we'll just go in order. Uh, Barbara, I don't know if you want to come on line or ask a question or just tell your thoughts of what you got a chance to read. I, I don't have any questions. I'm just thoroughly enjoying hearing the enthusiasm in you telling the stories. It just brings a whole new life to them again and just really appreciating that. Thank you. Awesome. Kat, uh, did you want to uh, talk about the book from your point of view or maybe ask a question? Yes. Um, I also love this book. I love that there were pictures in it as well. And I want to thank Braden for coming to the meeting too, to share his perspective on the stories as well. Um, I was super impressed by your commitment to the lifestyle and to the people and also um, the dog rib people's complete resourcefulness as you you've been talking about how how they they worked in harmony with the land and it just yeah it's a bit sad that we have not been able to experience that or or do that um ever <laughs> is uh, and I found this book a really great um example for settlers to show them the commitment it takes to build relationships with indigenous people so I want to thank you for that that's all. <laughs> I don't know if you want to reply there, Kirian. Um, uh, Rosemary, you'd be up next. Uh, no, I really appreciate everybody, everybody's comments, and it's, it's so meaningful to get this these kind of feedback from so many people. It's it's really 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 good. Yeah, it's uh, like the book doesn't make any money whatsoever <laughs> on my end anyway the book the publisher makes money but uh, it's it gives the book so much purpose that the money is so not important in any way shape or form it's this kind of feedback is, that it means the world to me it's just to, to be able to carry these stories on and tell them to to, to people outside of the, the north but to get the feedback from the north from young, some young people and they're telling me stories like uh, things like you tell things about my father and my grandfather that I've never even known, you know, uh, that no one ever mentioned before. And to get that kind of feedback, uh, that's really good. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, Rosemary, I don't know if you uh, got a chance to reply yet, but you're up next in the order. Um, I, I would like to ask 
and forgive me if you've written about this or, or talked about it already, but why was it so important to you to write this book? Like it took the happenings were in the 70s and 80s. I'm not totally clear when you started writing it, how long it took you, but, but what, what drove you to write this book? I, well, I, I moved here to, uh, to Peterborough and uh, when I was here, um, I, uh, I ended up uh, being in, in, invited to a, a canoe symposium. And uh, uh, when I went to the canoe symposium, I did a presentation, but it was a, not about canoeing, it was about uh, um, uh, dog sled trips. And uh, when they presented to me, they said that this is a canoe symposium, but because you traveled on the trails of the, the same routes that people take by canoe, you're, you're just traveling on top of the water, not in the water. So we welcome you, we welcome you to, to talk about here at the Canoe Museum, which was really, really good. A, a different concept for a canoe museum to do talks about dog teams. And uh, so I did that talk. And when I was there, I uh, had the fortune of meeting a woman who uh, uh, ran a, a canoe symposium in the United States in a small town in, in Vermont. And she invited me to come down there. And then I went down there for five years, uh, five invitations or five uh, speakings. And every time I went, everyone was, would tell me, you should write a book, you should okay. write a book. And uh, so that kind of encouraged me to buckle down. And, and uh, I unfortunately kept a bit of a, a, a diary and uh, the diary, uh, helped me bring me back to the time. And so mm -hmm. the, the diary might have had something that's not really that great a story, but it, but reminded me of something that happened at that time and mm -hmm. brought me back in the time. And now it's, I see the importance of the story. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, at the time it wasn't important. I might have been writing down what I was having for supper <laughs> or how I, you know, I, I made a fire and, uh, uh, or, or a certain location and then that location would bring back a memory and then I, okay. I started uh, digging my mind for the details and slowly but surely it brought me right back to this time and, and, mm -hmm. and, and I was really able to dig it out of my memory it was it became simple we just started mm -hmm. to roll out and uh, that's that's how it came about yeah mm -hmm. thank you and how, how did you um how did you go about getting permission from everyone after all that time? Um, I, I just uh, contacted people and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's a few stories uh, that were really, really good. And uh, I couldn't uh, contact the people and uh, I had to leave them out. And I had uh, some phenomenal photographs and things like that. And it was just too hard to access that particular person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't turned down. I'm not even sure if the person was still alive. And uh, mm. I knew that two, it was a family and I, I knew that uh, two of the members of the family had died, but the third one, I wasn't sure and I couldn't get a hold of her. So it was, right. yeah, but there's a few stories like that that I mm -hmm. couldn't put in. And the publisher also uh, cut it down to uh, 375 pages or whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, so I had eight, 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 nine hundred pages. <laughs> so it, it has been cut, 
quite a bit. Yeah. Well, maybe you could do a part two. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for, for that, but I, it, it was it was a challenge. I, I have to be honest. If the book would never have been written if it wasn't for my brother in Winnipeg, who I would I would write the the book uh, the stories and I would send them to him, and uh, he would translate them because it's even Google. Uh, what's the thing for Google spelling spell spell check? Uh, can't find my spelling. <laughs> like I, I put words in, spell check can't find them. <laughs> so he translated everything. <laughs> right on. Uh, Joanne, do you have any uh, questions or do you want to reflect back to uh, the author? What a fantastic book. Um, it sort of delved me into a place I've never been. I've never been camping. I, I don't hunt, but I, I could, I, I was right there with it. It's, and it was, gave me that feeling that these people have been doing this for thousands of years and quite happy to continue that lifestyle, living off the land, uh, being at one with the environment. It was, it was fantastic. And I had to stop at some point and just take a breath and think how spoiled my life is and what hard work these people on a day-to-day -day lived, but they were happy, they were very resourceful, um, they were reducing, recycling, and reusing even before it became a thing. So thank you. Thank you for the book suggestion. It was, it was a great read. Really gave me a great insight. Thank you very much. Marnie, would you like to respond as well? I am seriously bummed that you're not considering a sequel. Because when I heard that there were like 900 pages, I would have read the next two books of 300 each right now. Um, yeah, this was quite a book. One of the things I kept wondering is where did Europeans get so lost? We got so freaking lost, you know? And, and I was thinking that it's not even, what you're describing when you talk about the early days, it was interesting. You could see the transition, right? Snowmobiles started coming in and, and there was more racism. You started talking more about the racism people encountered and just the whiteness that came in and smashed. And, and I was thinking it's not even, this is just my perspective, but of course, but it's not even about being connected to the land. It's that there's not a separation. The people in the land just are and they work together in a way that is um was fruitful and yeah exactly and it's you know it was a difficult blessed it was a human life it was a human life and um yeah i really love that one of the things that has will stick with me now i'm afraid i don't remember exactly which story but it was one of the times when you were frankly crazy and you went out and did something that that I think even the people up there weren't, wouldn't do. And you, and you, oh, I, you know what it was? I think it was when you were, you had to go for help and the two people had stayed at the cabin and you were expecting help and so on. And then you got, I mean, that was, oh my God. And, 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 but what the thing that the image that stays with me is you, you get to a place where there's a home of some sort. I don't know if it was a tent or a cabin or what. 
and the woman doesn't recognize you, but you recognize her because she's the one who'd given you the pouch years ago. And she doesn't recognize you because you're so frostbitten and you're so, and that, that the weather had done that much to you that you were unrecognizable. That really, that really, I just have that image, you know, that really struck me. And um, yeah, so um, I had a question. Um, I was going to ask, but I think you've kind of answered it. So uh, just that how you stay in touch with the people up there. And I was going to ask where you live now, but you've said Peterborough, I think you said. Yeah, just just how how life now connects to the life you had then and what you did then. If you choose to answer that, and that may be too too personal or something, you can tell me. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been back to, uh, twice uh, for a visit and uh, um, uh, it's a hard question to answer. There's personal things in there. Uh, uh, but yeah, I miss the North and uh, I miss that way of life. And un unfortunately, uh, even if the people decided tomorrow, you know, let's uh, to hell with the white man and the white man's way of life, we're going to go back to the land. They, they couldn't because it's gone from 3 million caribou to to, when I was there, 300,000 caribou, which was, I couldn't believe how many. And then it's down, like uh, about a year ago, it was down to 3,000 caribou. And, and uh, there's no explanation. Uh, the, the scientists can't figure it out. And uh, they, uh, like, you figure if you've got 300,000 caribou, uh, if they're not there, you'd find the corpses, right? And if you find the corpses, you'd know what the problem is. And, uh, but they never find the corpses. So where did the 300,000 caribou go? And I think back to what the elders told me and uh, the little stories, you piece them together over time. And uh, the elders, I, I asked, where do the caribou go? They're always migrating. And they said, well, they migrate up, uh, farther up into the Ar uh, Arctic in, in the summertime. Uh, there's a place there <clears throat> that's, uh, all the, the barren lands will be all free of ice and snow, but that particular spot has these, uh, um, uh, it's far enough north that there'd still be, uh, uh, not plateaus, but uh, uh, large areas like uh, uh, top of hills and uh, the edge, the, the, the north side of a hill would have ice on it. And, uh, but everything else is thawed out and they go there to have their calves. And I said, well, why would they go there for to have their calves there? And he says, because of mosquitoes. And mm. I said, well, what, what, do you, why, what do mosquitoes have to do with it? He said, he said because when the caribou are born, they, uh, the mosquitoes are so intense. There's so many millions of mosquitoes that, and I've seen pictures of this on the internet, where you'll see a baby caribou and it's completely, completely covered in mosquitoes. And they kill it, mosquitoes will kill the baby as it's after it's born because there are so many. And so with these little in this area that they go, they're, uh, they they'd have their babies and then they they nudge their babies like you see with deer and whatnot to get the babies to stand up and they'd be covered in mosquitoes and that and they'd get them up get them up and they'd uh, shuffle them shuffle them up onto the ice plateau and the breeze is there. And then the mosquitoes wouldn't bother them. And it takes just a little while when all of the phlegm or the, uh, the, the, the secretion from the birth is gone, 
that and they, their hair starts to uh, get loose and everything that that then they, they could get up on their feet and they'd survive. So you need these little ice plateaus for them. Well, with, with uh, if you think about it, with environmental change, if the place where the caribou go, I haven't been there since, but if that, in all likelihood, that ice is not there now. So then if, the, if, the, if they're dying at birth, then that would account for the fact that there are no corpses. And so the population would just decline, decline, decline. And you wouldn't find bodies all over the, uh, the barren lands of full-grown caribou. So that's my personal theory as to what probably has happened to the caribou. The scientists, I've never heard them explain it that way, but if there's no bodies and there's no other things to, to explain it, it's not hunt hunters. They, you know, the same thing you hear people bringing too many caribou back, which it's quite possible with skidoos and with the mines that uh, that definitely co does contribute to it. But it wouldn't uh, it contribute to that that much volume of loss. Thank you. That's 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 really interesting. And as you were speaking, for some reason, another part of the book that will that will really stick with me is you went out um, on a hunt with a young man from up there whose name I'm afraid I don't remember which one it who it was, and he had a gun and you had a bow and arrow. And you recognized a path because the tree was pointing and you had learned that if the point that you don't go that way, you go the other way. And so you knew stories that he didn't know. And um, yeah, so I think I was, I was really touched by how the impact the Europeans have on, on the culture. Yeah. He became the, the chief land claims negotiator for the dogger. Ah, <laughs> <deal. laughs> and he, he's responsible for all the, the uh, trips that the, the, uh, the, the people now take to the barren lands. They, like it, it all died off and no one went there anymore. And it, it was an annual event. And it was, it was an event that, that the, the youth, uh, that's how you became a man as a dogger. Mm. That when you went, with, if you went to the Barrenlands with your parents uh, as a kid, when you came back, you were a man. man. And uh, because of what you went through and what you experienced, and uh, that died off. And he he's responsible now. He has been trying to get that uh, people back on the land. Cool. And that was one of his man mantras uh, uh, when he was trying to uh, uh, do the land claims: was if you don't use it, we lose it. And he kept uh, hammering that. Uh, at all of the meetings that they had, that uh, when they were fighting the government for their land, and they, how do you prove that, that that's our land? We go back and we use it. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. And so he, he was really promoted that. And, and they then, he, he then inter interviewed uh, every trapper, elder, elder trapper, and uh, they got one young guy to uh, document and the, the trapper would say, uh, he, they put a map on the wall and he would explain where did you trap? Where did your dad trap? And, and they would made a map of every trap line that they could possibly, it might not have been two generations ago, but where did they trap? And where did your, your people, uh, your clan uh, hunt? And uh, they used that when they went to the government and they negotiated one of the biggest land claims mm. in North America. Mm. Now, he was a very smart man, that man that I told him the road goes that way, not that way. <laughs> the trees bent. Yeah. The wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> John, John Bezo? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, I, I really, I love this book and I thank you for it. And it looked like uh, Brayden made the point that uh, he's been trying to encourage his dad to make a sequel. So, <laughs> yeah, I invite Sarah uh, if you want to um, reflect it all or ask a question. Um, I don't really have any questions. I'm just enjoying to hear about all these stories and listen to, to people's thoughts about this book. So thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. And Wendy, um, I invite you as well. Thank you. Um, many of my questions have been asked, but I think um, what I what I love the most about the book is just the the openness to learning that that you had all throughout the book, but also this evening as you're as you're talking, I can just see how that um, curiosity and and openness to to asking good questions. And, and being ready to hear the answers, even when they're not tough answers, um, are, are good uh, skills overall. And, and I really loved how you emphasize the importance of relationship building over time. So I really, uh, I loved when you would give us little snippets in the earlier parts of the book on, you know, this will be important later on and then connect it in to, to where, you know, I think Marnie gave a, that great example of the, of when, you were unrecognizable, but then you had that item that that tied you together. Um, so that was wonderful. And and I think what I I really liked about what you spoke about tonight was when you're now having young people tell you, you know, there's things they never knew. Um, you know, I, that resonated a lot for me. I'm noticing as I as I learn about my own family, um, the more digging I do, like I'm grateful for any of the writers, any of the writers who wrote letters or or other ways that they wrote things down, it gives me pieces to go on, but then connected to that are also the conversations with the people that I know or, or the conversations I had at earlier times in my life that I now think back and, I'm, and can have more of the story coming together. Um, so I, I just loved all those bits that you gave in the book of, of pieces for people to reflect on if they choose to see it. Um, and so I, I think the, the one that I wanted to pull out here that I thought was just so um, poignant that you included it, it was the, the really brief chapter called The Inquisitive One, um, where, where you had um, to have the conversation about where does the money come from? Um, and I just really loved uh, your emphasis at the end there that pointed out um, that unless people are choosing to see it from another perspective, they just live in these assumptions that they make about what's known. And, and so I just love that, but I guess I'll just leave it with that. And if you want to say anything further, I'd love to hear it, but certainly got a lot out of, lot of the book, but also from the discussion tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I don't know, is that everybody? Kathy has a quick question here. If okay, she would just sorry. unmute herself. We're getting really close on time yeah. here. Okay. Um, the chapter about the plateau where you were building the cabin and the, the father and his son, something just feels unfinished, unsaid. Like if, if he was a trapper, why did he show up without 
like snowshoes and stuff. And I don't know, I was just wondering if there was anything that you can flesh out that's not in the book, because I feel a little bit unsatisfied with that chapter. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a good chapter, but I just feel like there's more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, there is. Um, uh, it's because there's still some people alive uh, that uh, family members and uh, but I it, it's no secret there's uh, alcohol is a big big problem in the north and uh, he was uh, um, in an alcoholic for an incredible length of time and uh, he, he was uh, he was damaged and uh, he uh, um, I think he, he had a lot to do uh, with being brought up in the uh, residential schools and, uh, and yeah, he, the, the, the community itself where he lived, it was a, a very large problem with alcohol. And that was basically, I didn't want to say too much about it and, and uh, bring that up, but, uh, yeah, that 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 was the, the, yeah. He, he was supposedly the uh, he's recorded in the Hudson Bay Company as being uh, the best trapper in the Northwest Territories uh, for a certain thing. I forget what it was. Martin, I think it was. He had trapped more Martin than anybody else in the Northwest Territories. So he was a very successful, very uh, great on the land, great person on the land, but terrible in town. And that goes for so many people in the north that when they get into town, uh, there goes all sense of uh, responsibility, everything, once uh, the alcohol is introduced. And uh, that's so, so un unfortunate. It's uh, well, just uh, the way it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you. I know you don't have to go any farther. It's, it's, it's just, um, yeah. I was just so curious because I, I was reading and going, something seems off. Like there's more to this story that, you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I, I don't mean to pry though. So, but thank you so much. Thanks everybody for reflecting and, and for being so open to talk about this. Um, I might bring Kathy back on or Katie, sorry, because we have at this point, um, I guess this is ending our relationship with the Calgary Public Library, unfortunately. It's been absolutely wonderful to work together with you. So I wanna say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, maybe things will change in the future where people will, uh, or the library will feel comfortable continuing to do online uh, book clubs. But until then, I just encourage people to go to nativecalgarian.com. Um, I did po uh, post some links and some books and uh, I can't see it because I had to switch accounts and such. So if you can't see it, can you let us know so that somebody else can copy and paste it into the comments for everybody? And then hopefully we'll be able to do that, uh, go from there. I'm seeing it in the chat there, Michelle, so I hope everyone else is as well. I dropped a link to the Native Calgarian website as well. So um, yeah, on behalf of the library and just on behalf of myself as a person, um, I felt really honored to be sort of invited into this club and this group of people who are 
um, doing this really difficult but important work. Uh, and I was talking to Michelle before the program, and I, I, I'd like to join the book club, not as a library staff member, but just as a regular person. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, yeah, and it's been really wonderful getting to know all of you. And um, I really appreciate everybody's openness. And um, I hope to see all of you soon at the book club and and uh, elsewhere. So thank you so, so much, Michelle and everybody for um, participating and for, you know, leading this book club. It's been um, a really incredible experience for me. So Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Uh, yeah, and thank you to the Moores. Brady, I see your hand is up if you wanted to unmute yourself. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Katie, make sure you get this book in all the libraries. <laughs> I'm working on it. I am working on it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's a great book. So thank you so much to the Morris for coming today. It was such an honor uh, to have people who actually know where my people are from and talking about it. And, um, you know, being able to tell stories. I, when my uh, great grandmother, she passed away from uh, sickness and uh, I know her and my great grandfather were loggers at the time. And my, my granny was like swinging right, in, right where she had passed and she was sick as well. And it just, I really felt like sometimes you could really feel that where like the atmosphere and how hard those lives were at that time. So I just really appreciate it. And Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I think you have a fan club of people that would love to see a sequel. That would be very committed. So no pressure. <laughs> the pre-orders so, so much for having me. I, I can't uh, tell you how much this means. It's wonderful meeting every one of you. Wonderful. Really wonderful. Thank well, you so much. Masi, masi cho. Masi cho. I'm going to uh, publish this and send you a link, sir, and then that way you'll be able to look back on it if you wish or share it with folks that you might uh, want to share it with. So thank you all the folks who are new who came to this book club who read the book. I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to see more of you in the future. So have a wonderful time until next time. And then we'll just be on Native Calgarian.